Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 22 through 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Man, thank you, Matt. This morning we're talking about the countercultural mandate that we're given in Scripture. Found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is our text for our sermon this morning. This is the word of God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification or holiness that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, now we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts as we unpack this passage of Scripture, and let us be convinced of its truth. Let your word, O God, be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, guiding and leading us in the way of holiness and truth and righteousness. Help us, Lord God, to be transformed, that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in ancient Israel, Yahweh worship was not the only religious system that competed for the hearts of God's people. Canaanite religion was an alluring alternative, and when a good king would come into power, he would rid the land of idols, but often failed to remove the high places. Those were the altars to the false gods. Uh, 
This became a lingering problem in Israel because they were a visible reminder of the idolatry that they were trying to leave behind. In the same way, sexual immorality is one of our high places. In his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, Kevin DeYoung states, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to today's Christian, Christian countries in the West, what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is at how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us, it doesn't upset us, it doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal, just a way of life, and sometimes even downright entertaining. Much of this is a result from the sexual revolution in the 1960s, which really never ended. It's one revolution that has just been ongoing all these years. 50 years on, we're sort of still in the sexual revolution. In fact, the state itself has codified and enforced the sexual revolution. This is actually the thesis of a book by Jennifer Roback Morse called The Sexual State, how elite ideologies are destroying lives and why the church was right all along. Sexual revolution, she argues, was the creation of society's elites who grabbed the power of the state and remade America in the image of sexual liberty. The sexual revolution, she argues, was anything but a sort of grassroots movement up from the people. And that's sort of how we remember movements from the 60s. We think of people marching in the street, like the civil rights movement. But that's not what the sexual revolution was. What it accomplished, if you can call it an accomplishment, was it removed the presumption of permanence for marriage by creating no-fault divorce. And you see this in the fact that the state, even to this day, will always side with the person in the marriage who wants it the least. The state will always side with the person who wants the marriage the least when a divorce is happening. And I know many people, Christians, whose spouses divorced them, and they didn't want to be divorced, but there was nothing they could do about it. Their spouse was intent on ending and dissolving the marriage, as heartbreaking as it was, and the state sided with them. And what happened as a result of this is it removed the presumption of sexual exclusivity, making adultery no longer a marital fault. In other words, if you tired of your husband and you got and you want that you found someone else, you were free to do that, or vice versa. You could just end the marriage, and the results have had disastrous consequences for us as a society. And the question we might ask is, who really benefits from the sexual revolution? It's not the poor or working class people, not blue collar people or everyday people. It's the higher echelons of society, Jennifer Roback Morse argues, the educated, wealthy elite who want sexual liberation because they suffer very little consequences of adultery and divorce. You know, rich people can get away with things that poor people can't. A divorce is a disaster for poor people. Unmarried pregnancy is a disaster for a poor person. 
For a middle class person, it's inconvenient. For a Hollywood star, it's a press release. But an unmarried pregnancy is a disaster for a poor person. And depending on how high you go up the food chain, it has different implications for different people. For the lower classes, and when I say lower classes, I just mean socioeconomic status or education status. For, for them, marriage and monogamy is often the only thing keeping them from abject poverty. It makes sense, doesn't it? Two people working together, doing all they can. Keep the lights on, pay the bills, feed the children. And yet the state who says it cares about poverty is propping up a system that has devastated American families. And while we may be tempted to beat up on one political party, the truth is when we talk about laws that have been passed through Congress, it's been a bipartisan effort over the decades. And when you think about how this was accomplished and the consequences of it all, you recognize that this is where sort of America's radical individualism, especially of the elite, have become really irresponsible. You know, people who make it to the top of our society fight for liberties and rights that devastate everyone else except themselves. This is what the sexual revolution has wrought. A sort of outsized influence by elites on everyone around them. And this is exactly what the LGBTQ movement is, isn't it? For example, a 2017 Gallup poll showed that people with gender dysphoria make up only about half of 1% of the population. But if you are watching, if you're watching television today or advertisements in magazines or movies, you would think we were a nation of transgendered people. And so the sexual revolution no longer represents some kind of counterculture. It is the mainstream. And it has become its own sort of imperialism, insisting on conformity by coercion and oppressing and persecuting anyone who resists. It's not enough just to tolerate, you have to celebrate or suffer the consequences. They've become the new inquisitors. And the church, you know, is often accused of prioritizing sexual sins. You know, the culture accuses the church of being obsessed with sex because we prioritize sexual sin over every other sin, but if you look at scripture, if you really look at the Bible, sexual sins are catapulted at the top of every list of vices. It's there in scripture. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not um, falsely created. It's there in the word of God. It's something scripture cares about. And it's not because the Bible is prudish or has a low view of romantic Im intimacy, just the opposite. But because living a life consistent with the teaching of Jesus means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. So I want you to sort of burn that into your brain, okay? Living a life in faithful commitment to Jesus means a serious commitment to holiness and purity in our sexual lives. Now why is this? Why? 
Why does what we do with our bodies matter so much to God? Why does God care? Because God cares about people and sexual misbehavior dishonors and destroys people's dignity. So in contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around us, we're given a truly countercultural mandate. In fact, this is the counterculture, okay? Sexual revolution is no, is, is no countercultural thing. I mean, that's the mainstream. This is the counterculture. Sexual purity, sexual holiness. <clears throat> to be sexual holy. So here's the big idea, okay? The sexual ethic of the Bible is a countercultural mandate. Maybe you could write that down if you're taking notes. And what I want to do this morning is I want to quickly unpack the what, the how, and the why of sexual holiness. So let's start with the what. Number one, abstain. Verses one through three. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to walk and to please God, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Just look at that for a moment. Look at that verse, whether in your Bible or up on screen. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I realize that the idea of abstinence is not going to launch any spring break parties anytime soon. But notice what it says he doesn't say abstain from sex, but sexual immorality. Now, what is sexual immorality? Well, the Greek word is the word porneia, which, as you can imagine, is closely related to a word that we use today to describe illicit viewing of things online or, or otherwise. And what the Greek word porneia is defined as is anything other than sex between a man and a woman who are married. That was the Greek contextual concept of this word, and that's how it's defined. To put it another way, heteronormative matrimony. Anything other than that is defined as sexual immorality. And you might be thinking, well, where do you get that from, Jordan? Well, look at Jesus' words in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is a glorious union between two people who dignify each other's bodies with lifelong commitment to love and care for one another and to raise children. And so to answer the question, why can't a man and a man be together? Well, the answer is because that's not what men are made for. Why can't a woman and a woman be together? Because that's not what they're made for. Let me just look at Jesus' words. Males and females are obviously very different and even their bodies complement one another. They're designed to work together to make with God the music of creation. Something deep within the structure of the world responds to the coming together of like and unlike. 
Something that cannot be reached by the mere joining together of like and like. Does that make sense? All creation rejoices at this union of like and unlike, man and woman, when they come together to make with God the music of creation. Talking about having children and reproducing. In other words, the holiness of sex is intricately tied to the otherness of men and women. We might call this the reproductive exclusivity of men and women, right? God's intention for the human race from the garden was to be fruitful and multiply, which is something only men and women can't do. And even when a couple cannot have children, they still are glorifying God with their otherness, with their reproductive otherness, because that is how God has made the human race. And so when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they glorify God by the union of their otherness, because together, like and unlike, become one in a way that cannot be reproduced in same-sex relationships. And it's this reproductive aspect that defines a God-pleasing sexual union. And sexual holiness is bound up in this reality, the reality of reproductive otherness. I might get canceled for saying what I'm saying, but here goes. Here's an application point for you, okay? Holy sex is tied to our reproductive otherness. Make a mental note of that. It's not just the insistence on traditional marriage for tradition's sake, right? I mean, you know, what value is there in tradition for tradition's sake other than some sentimental, nostalgic memory? But we're talking about something that pleases the God who has made and created all the universe, including us. I mean, there's this imperative this cosmic imperative to take this seriously. Now, we might also ask, what does that mean for a single person? Are they somehow less important or less valuable in God's sight because they are not joining with someone else if they're single? And the answer is no, but sex is not an available option for them which means a single person glorifies God in their chastity if they're not married. So what should they do? Well, the Bible says, we just read in 1 Thessalonians, abstain. So that's the what, sexual holiness. Now we come to the how. How do we abstain from sexual immorality? This is Paul's word to us. Abstain from sexual immorality, not sex, but sexual immorality, and what we've so far defined as being sexually immoral. Well, Paul says this straight up, control your body, point number two. He says, each one of you, starting in verse four, each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, he's really talking about the heathen, unbelievers, people who do not know God. You know, this was new to the Thessalonians because, you know, they were former pagans who grew up in the hyper-sexualized Greco-Roman world. 
sort of like kids today in America. In fact, what Paul was saying was radical, and what I'm saying right now for the average 20-year-old is totally radical. Depending on your age, you may have remembered this kind of preaching or this kind of thinking being more vocal, which has strangely in the recent decades quieted, even in biblically faithful churches, is quieted, right? The church itself is even being censored, and often not by the world, but by its members. And Paul says this, what you do with your body matters. What you do with your body matters. You know, it's the heathen, it's the unbelievers that don't know God who do anything with their bodies. They let their lusts order them around. But Paul is saying, no, that's not what you do as followers of Christ. That's what the heathen do. That's what the unbelievers do. That's what people who don't worship God do. That's not what you do. Look at what he tells the Corinthians. Don't you know that your bodies belong to Christ? Flee from sexual immorality. Whenever I read that passage, I always thought of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Some of you know the story, right? I could, you know, he left his jacket behind. I mean, he was out the door. Flee. Resist temptation, but flee sexual immorality. Which means if something is tempting you with something is tempting you in that area, don't sit there and try to fight it out. You may have to walk out the door. Flee, he says, flee it, leave, run. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sex, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, don't you know? And we can think about the consequences of sexual immorality, can't we? On the body, right? You steal from someone, you know, you take something that belongs to them, it's a sin committed outside the body, but when, when you're sexually immoral, it affects your own body. And you can think of diseases and things like that. You can also think of the consequences. What's one of the biggest ways, and this, we may not think about this, but one of the biggest ways that we sin with our bodies is with our eyes. Before a person ever acts out, it starts with what you look at, because what you look at affects what you think about, right? Images are burned into the memory of your mind and heart, and long after you've looked at an explicit image, it's still there, right? The eyes, the windows of the soul, it's still there, and, and for those even who have repented of something like that, it's hard to shake, those images pop back up, you know, like an advertisement when you least expect it. And Paul says this. This is, the real, this is the connotation of what he's really saying. Each one of you ought to learn how to control his own body, right? So he doesn't just say, control your own bodies. He says, you know, what is becoming of followers of Christ? That we develop the skill of controlling our own body. And it's a skill, it takes time to learn the skill of controlling your own body. Now, it's not always true that older people are better at this, but often when you get older, you've had enough practice and failures over the years that you do get a little better at it. And this is the good news, is that 
practicing it, you can get better at it. The more you practice sexual chastity and obedience and controlling your body, the better you can get at it. Psychologists have talked about sort of the neural pathways of certain actions, behaviors, and images, and you have to starve those things out because the more you do them, the more your body wants to do them. People, just think about, you know, in your daily practice, you know, for those of you who have, you know, maybe you've started skipping breakfast, it's hard at first if you're used to eating breakfast at 7 a.m. every morning, but after a while it gets a little easier, right? There's sort of muscle memory and you know, digestive memory and things like that, well, well, the body works that way also. And so it takes time to create a habit or pattern of abstinence or self-control. But the good news is the more you do it, the more you can do it, the more you want to do it. But it's hard at first. And this is, I think, something we really need to understand about sin is that the more you overcome, the more you want to overcome, Right? The more you love your neighbor, the more you want to love your your neighbor. The more you honor your spouse, the more you want to honor your spouse. Because it feels good to do it. It feels good to have that clear conscience before God, knowing that you have fought the good fight. Right? So here's an application point. Controlling my body is a holy discipline that honors God. It seems so obvious and elementary, but it's powerful. It's true. Controlling my body honors God when I don't act out. When I beat my body into subjection, this is Paul's language over and over again in Scripture, I get to beat my body into subjection. This is is one thing about fasting that I miss. I grew up with fasting. I'm sort of sad that churches today don't do it. Maybe we'll recover a, a practice of fasting. But one of the things about fasting is sort of telling your body, you don't control me. And push the plate back, right? And you can fast not just from food, you can fast from all kinds of different things. But it tells the body, you're not in control, the spirit's in control. How do I control my body? Well, I start by practicing self-denial in the very thing it's demanding. And the body makes its demands. Give me this, give me this. But over time, that pounding fades It takes time, it takes prayer, it takes the Spirit's help. But we have a part to play in it as well. Ask God. Ask the Spirit to convict your heart. Ask God to help you fall in love with Him more than that thing. And ask God to help you to recognize that your sin wants to destroy you. It wants to kill you. You have to be ruthless with your sin, as we've talked about before. So that's the what of sexual holiness. And now, that's the what and the how, but now we come to talk about the why. We've talked about the what, abstain. The how, control your body. And now the why, why we should strive for sexual purity. Paul says, number three, because God is an avenger. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God is an avenger. Now, we may look at that and say, oh, like God wants to like carry out his vengeance on me because I commit sexual sin. 
Well, it's more complicated than that. The word in the original language has sort of, it's sort of a catch-all phrase for sort of like consequences, right? So yes, God is a judge. God judges sin and unrighteousness. But there are also some practical consequences that are sort of fall into the category of God's vengeance. And some of that is just the practical outworking of things that we do, right? So sexual sin, besides being an offense against God's holiness and honor, it's an act of fraud against a brother. And this is what Paul is thinking about. Sexual immorality takes what rightly belongs to someone else. Paul is thinking not just about adultery, which robs another man's wife, but also sex before marriage with a woman who will one day be someone's wife. It wrongs the man she will one day marry. That's what Paul is thinking about. And so she doesn't bring into the marriage her virginity, which, is the ancient, which in the ancient world, you know, was a prize for a husband, a wife's sexual chastity. And if you think, well, those are sort of values of a bygone era, just look at how the Bible describes the bride of Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, he's talking about the church in Corinth, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's using the metaphor of sexual chastity to talk about the church's collective and corporate holiness to Jesus. The church is Christ's virgin bride, and he died for her purity. Look at this other verse in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. If I just pause right there for a moment, you astute theologians could argue and say, well, that says something about what her, her sort of state of spiritual purity needing to be purified, and that's true. That's what Christ does to us. He purifies and cleanses us. So if you're thinking, well, Jordan, the image you're giving is like sort of someone who's like, you know, never messed up, who's kept themselves pure and holy from start to finish. But implicit in those words there is how Christ renews us in the gospel. And his sacrificial atoning death restores us to that place of purity and holiness. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. This is the idea of sexual holiness and purity. And Paul wants us to take it seriously. And there's a degree of sort of discomfort, I think, that exists when we talk about these things. Because as much as we may be thinking about the culture around us, we also think about our own heart. We also think about ways in which we have not always been faithful. And I'll just say that we're all, you're in good company because we're all in the same boat in that regard. Christ forgives us, renews us, restores us, washes us with the word, and cleanses us so that we might be presented to him as spotless and blameless on the day of his judgment. 
This is why we trust in him. And this is why we look to him. Because of his work of redemption and how it makes us right with God. Sexual immorality, it causes pain. It brings baggage into marriages and it can destroy marriages. There are consequences, emotional, spiritual, mental consequences. And the reason Paul says all of this, do you want to know why Paul even says this? He's not being legalistic. He's not being moralistic. He wants to see them thrive in their sanctification and holiness. He wants to see their heart renewed after the image of its maker in Christ. And that means understanding the very heart of God for us in these matters. This is the heart of God. This is not just one person's opinion. This is not just the Apostle Paul's sort of idiosyncratic take on, you know, romance and sexual intimacy. He's communicating to us the very heart of God. And look at his final admonition. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, pay very close attention to this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The rejection of the church, I'm thinking about Jennifer Roback Morse's book, which is, you know, how the church has been right all along, and it has. Not that we haven't made mistakes, and, and sometimes the church has been overly zealous, Biggest stumbling block to our culture, of course, is when we say things with our mouths and do something different with our bodies. And guess what? People are paying attention to that. They see that. But when they ultimately reject this, they're not rejecting us, our opinion. They're rejecting God. And that's what Paul says. Whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. This is God's heart for his people. And God gives the Holy Spirit to us. To disregard the warnings here is dangerous. It's deadly. Because we disregard God. This is the cultural, countercultural mandate we've been given. And it is countercultural now. You are in the minority now. If you hold to this, if you believe that God cares about your sexual purity and that sexual holiness is found within the confines and bounds of heteronormative matrimony. How's that for some fancy sociological language? Right? God cares about your body because you've been made in his image. God cares about how you treat others because they've been made in his image. God doesn't want us objectifying one another, exploiting one another, and violating his holy heart for us because guess what? God's commands for us, God's moral vision for us is good. It's good for us. We live happier, healthier lives when we live this way. It's not just some rule, some old-fashioned, antiquated rule. God knows what makes us truly happy. And God knows what destroys us, and his heart is to warn us 
to see us flourishing as followers of his son Jesus and bearing his image in the world. Maybe sexual immorality is a high place in your life. Maybe not in actions, but in thoughts and the things you look at. Or maybe in actions. And maybe like those kings who took over Israel and Judah, who rooted out idols, but didn't go so far as to tear down the high places, maybe you need to root out and tear down those high places. Maybe this is a good week for you to reflect what high places have I left in my life that need to be tore down. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this warning and admonition. Thank you for revealing the very heart of holiness for us, your people. For this is why Christ died, to reconcile us to God and to conform us to his holiness. Lord, we're comforted with the knowledge that it is the Spirit ultimately working in us that sanctifies and makes us holy, but that we also sanctify ourselves as we resist temptation and pursue holiness in the fear of God. You've commanded us to abstain from sexual immorality. You've told us to control our bodies. What we do with our bodies matter. And you've warned us that one day your vengeance and judgment will be carried out on all those who rebel against you. Help us, O oh God, not in rebellion, but obedience to follow Christ, to be conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus, to the power of your spirit, which Paul tells us you give to us. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.